0: Quantspeak, expert insights from quants for quants. Welcome to Quantspeak, a new podcast from the CQF Institute at Fitch Learning.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Tudball, editor of Wilmot Magazine, and this is Quantspeak. On the 14th of June, the CQF Institute will present a one-day conference to mark the 50th anniversary since the first publication of the Black Shoals model. That's going to be at Eastern Time. And if you're a CQF Institute member, uh, you should really sign yourself up now for that one. Dr. Jörg Kienitz is a partner at Quaternion, Acadia's Quant Services Division. Jörg consults on the development, implementation and validation of quantitative models. He's an assistant professor at the University of Wuppertal and an adjunct and associate professor at the University of Cape Town. Prior to joining Quaternion, Jörg worked at firms such as Reuters, Deutsche Postbank, Deloitte, as well as teaching at Oxford and other institutions. Jörg has authored four books: Monte Carlo Frameworks with Daniel J. Duffy, Financial Modeling with Daniel Wetterau, and Interest Rate Derivatives Explained One and Two with Peter Caspers. He's also co-authored many peer-reviewed research articles that appeared in leading journals, including Wilmot magazine. Uh, Welcome, Jörg.
0: Thank you very much for the introduction, Dan. And it's uh, great uh, that I can join uh, this uh, quad-speak period, actually.
1: I wanted to talk about first, I mean, the way in for us here is um, we've got the anniversary of Black Shoals coming up. It's interesting because we're actually celebrating Black Shoals and not Black Shoals Merton, although Merton's uh, contribution is the one that takes it into the really probabilistically uh, relevant kind of realm. And in terms of practice, that's what we deal with now. But it was just interesting to kind of mark this particular uh, publication in in terms of its formalizes what we have come to recognize as the options trading industry. It has uh, made that concrete in terms of how we think about things. Um, And then obviously when Merton, when Robert Merton made his, uh, made his contribution, um, then in terms of uh, being uh, probabilistically, more viable as a as a as a usable model then that's that's where we really kick off but um in terms of the presentation that you're making hedging in the age of statistical learning it's right up to date in terms of where quant finance is at the moment this is really at the at the sharp end of where quant finance really examines these problems now can you tell us a little bit about um, the relation between the work that you're presenting at the conference and how this ties in? you know, maybe we'll end up uh, at a point where you can actually talk about uh, black shoals hedging. So let's kick off from the machine learning uh, starting point and then take us through that to to hedging in black shoals.
0: Yeah, sure. So, uh, first thing, uh, I think you mentioned a uh, very important uh, thing, uh, namely the name Merton, actually. And uh, during writing the books, uh, I experienced from one of the reviewers, actually, he was uh, very happy that in the books uh, we always mentioned Black Scots and Merton and BSM. So, uh, not forgetting just one of the uh, key figures, I think. And also in the uh, slides of my talk, uh, which I'm presenting. Uh, at the conference, uh, I mentioned Black-Schools and Merton, uh, though it is the uh, 50th uh, anniversary of uh, the Black-Schools uh, model as, as it is announced. But uh, nevertheless, so for me, actually, the key idea in this uh, whole framework of Black-Schools and Merton is uh, the idea of uh, being able uh, yeah, to use uh, a portfolio of uh, certain uh, instruments, namely a riskless uh, account uh, and a risky uh, underlying, the stock, for example, and form a portfolio in a way such that it is uh, so-called risk-neutral, namely that it earns the uh, rate uh, which you can earn just uh, set. Uh, giving your money into a bank account, for example, or buying a riskless uh, uh, financial uh, instrument contract whatsoever. And uh, yeah, that is very interesting. So despite uh, that uh, the stock price or the risky asset price has a certain kind of drift in their framework, it is actually uh, safe for evaluating an option to use the risk uh, neutral rate uh, for deriving all the equations or the uh, underlying uh, um, option prices. And this is due to this hedging argument. And that's a fascinating thing, I think, because uh, uh, the kind of um, idea can be applied to much more general models, to much more general settings, actually, getting rid of all the uh, underlying assumptions in a way, just by specifying a possibility or a way uh, to hatch, and uh, this is uh, the key idea of the talk, uh, and uh, it's based on earlier works I did with uh, colleague Gordon Lee. Um, he's now at BNY Mellon, and a former colleague of mine, Nikola Novacik and uh, Nancy Gang, a former uh, student at Imperial College, and we considered uh, the idea of uh, specifying. Model agnostic and data driven delta hedge, and uh, in this respect, uh, we introduced um, yeah local regression kernel estimates. So really nitty gritty numerical techniques for being able to derive uh, not only the prices but as a byproduct the hedges, and. Uh, within this uh, numerical setup uh, we had to uh, determine uh, which is called for example uh, the optimal local bandwidth in this uh, hatching procedure and this is a yeah, numerical delicate problem uh, if you uh, deal with others than the gaussian distribution for example and uh, the key idea i am presenting at the conference is uh, that uh, i am specifying a hatching strategy and Implicitly a uh, pricing or a price implicitly a hedge. Uh, see it uh, as you like, and uh, just using a discrete time grid, so hedging takes place in in a discrete time, uh, where I only have to know the realizations of the uh, underlying assets at these time points, and to keep things uh, simple, I thought uh, not having this numerical complex uh, computation of local. Uh, bandwidth is uh, in this setup, but uh, it would be nice to simply specify a model class and just one parameter. And actually that's what I do with the Gaussian mixture models there. So the acronym GMM stands for Gaussian mixture models. And uh, these Gaussian mixture models need just one component, namely the number of Gaussians, which you mix in terms of the distribution, not in terms of the sum of random variables there. Yes, and with this setup, somehow you can handle quite complex uh, distributions. So, bimodal distributions uh, uh, are possible, uh, distributions where the tails are not uh, uh, that of a the Gaussian, uh, they can be skewed and so forth. And the only thing then would be uh, to determine the number of Gaussians. The other uh, parameters which go in there, like the means and the covariances and the mixing weights, are Uh, derived by a very standard uh, numerical approximation procedure, which is called the uh, expectation maximization algorithm. It's very well known among statisticians and uh, mathematicians, and there have been a lot of research of uh, making that stable, determining the uh, uh, starting values for the optimization and so forth. And once you have specified this, uh, the number of uh, Gaussians, You simply use your data, fit the Gaussians to the data. And the key point then is, uh, once you have these Gaussians available, you are able to compute, due to the um, um, nature of the Gaussian distribution, all conditional distributions uh, analytically. That's uh, quite nice. So in this talk, I will present how uh, you can use this numerical expectation maximization and the properties of the Gaussian distribution to then be able to compute the deltas and finally also the prices analytically and you do not have to uh, worry about the underlying model in a way once you have the Gaussians set up uh, you are in business and can calculate everything in closed form uh, for that, I show uh, the application with the models you mentioned already. So, for example, the rougher Gomi model. So it's by no means Gaussian actually, and uh, uh, the deltas and the prices had to be computed uh, with Monte Carlo simulations, and uh, uh, that's of course time-consuming. But uh, with this uh, uh, approach, uh, we can, uh, yeah, apply this uh, GMM model to this kind of. Uh, model, for example, and be able to get the deltas in closed form. And the same holds true, for example, for the Heston, the Bates model you mentioned, and uh, yeah, presenting some stuff in one and in multiple dimensions. So a 10-dimensional Heston model where we calculate the deltas in closed form. So uh, that's uh, something I think, which uh, might be very interesting uh, to the uh, quant finance audience and with it.
1: Absolutely. How long was the paper in, in development for? Because it's it's very, very involved.
0: Uh, yes, uh, it, it's actually based on the ideas I've uh, set uh, on using uh, the um, uh, local regression stuff with Gordon Lee. And uh, then it was only actually a small step uh, to uh, think about what type of uh, methods uh, you could use to simplify everything and uh, then I came across uh, the, the Gaussian mixture models. I had uh, uh, dealt with them uh, sometime uh, uh, in the past and uh, found it uh, very interesting, actually. So to parameterize smiles, for example, and so forth, and uh, uh, I used them uh, actively uh, once I was a quant in a bank. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, so I came up with this idea tried it out and uh, these uh, fantastic uh, open source, uh, maybe another topic for this quant uh, <laughs> speak today uh, open source libraries, which are available in the Python uh, package. Uh, they provide nearly everything uh, you need for that and uh, the things uh, which were missing uh, were easy to to program actually uh, when you of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> Can handle the underlying uh, packages and uh, know what you want uh, and uh, then I applied it actually to uh, the Heston model at first and it worked quite well in one dimension and then yeah uh, once you know w- where you have to look where you have to tune things uh, yeah uh, you can uh, you can get results uh, uh, very fast actually so putting then the uh, examples together uh, were Uh, that was not that complicated and uh, it worked uh, really quite well. But uh, I think uh, the complication now becomes in uh, taking the idea of uh, the the initial application and spreading uh, uh, the method uh, to, to other types of problems. So with a student I'm currently investigating forward-backward-stochastic differential equations, we uh, get get some nice results there. And these are quite involved uh, uh, topics in uh, mathematics and in quantitative finance. And uh, I can see uh, some some, uh, interest uh, from other uh, um, disciplines and uh, other um, um, applications in quantitative finance where we are currently looking into and uh yeah uh, i hope uh, that this method somehow will be um uh, investigated further research further and maybe we'll find some some nice uh, other applications for that
1: yeah that's great i look forward to to seeing the results of the new the new work the new research that you're you're working on at the moment too one question that um just as a I'm curious to know what you think of this. Um, with with machine learning having become so much of a accepted tool now at this point, it some it sometimes makes me recall when I first uh, had to become familiar with quantitative finance, which was at the turn of the millennium. So we're going back some time now. Um, And at that point, I recall, it was quite easy to discern some researchers were very much about statistical methods, some researchers were very much about numerical methods, and sometimes they'd get into terrible arguments with each other. Largely, of course, I'm sure because of uh, the technological uh, limitations of the period. But now we're here and we are here. We've gone through the evangelizing of big data. We've moved into the machine learning era and the associated uh, artificial intelligence issues as well. And I was just wondering whether you might reflect on whether machine learning has sort of represents a form of victory for the statistical approach if you will (laughs) what do you think
0: yeah that's a a tricky one actually because uh, yeah so uh, i think uh, one thing you mentioned the computational power that's of course uh, one key reason for uh, the success now because uh, yeah also in the um, uh, for the statisticians uh, i think there are these frequentists and uh, these uh, bayesian guys somehow so Uh, with uh, the advent of the uh, computer power, I think, Bayesian methods, which uh, uh, are somehow really uh, the uh, idea to to think about uh, uh, data as I would uh, uh, frame it, actually. So having a prior distribution where you put in maybe some expert knowledge, maybe you do not have any knowledge at all, so you're just assuming a given distribution but then you're collecting data. Data flows in and you can update your prior distribution and account for the data to make it uh, into um, a posterior distribution. Uh, So I think uh, this is something where you need a lot of uh, computational power and uh, these Bayesian methods are uh, somehow a real key of these uh, statistical uh, learning methods. And uh, actually this is also something maybe not explicitly mentioned in this uh, uh, talk, uh, which I'm going to uh, present at the Black-Scholes 50th anniversary conference, because it's all about conditional expectations. Uh, uh, like uh, this prior and posterior distribution in between lies something uh, uh, where we use uh, conditional expectations. And I think this is uh, one key thing. And uh, I at least had uh, in the beginning, uh, yeah, some some troubles, some problems to really get my head on uh, into these conditional settings. So I remember when I first uh, first heard about that at uh, at school, this uh, um, the base rule and how you can apply it, and you get some uh, uh, nice examples uh, where you uh, in the beginning did not really. Uh, have the right feeling what's going on. So it was some, something uh, which, uh, um, yeah, was a kind of magic for me. But once you get into that and uh, accept this uh, conditional expectation thing, this conditional probability thing, I think it's quite, quite uh, powerful. And uh, now it's actually accessible uh, with regard to uh, the data size, the data availability, Uh, the computational power and so forth, and I think this will uh, sooner or later uh, uh, also uh, be uh, applied anywhere, I would say, in the one or the other way. Of course, in quantitative finance, uh, we we might uh, face uh, uh, two uh, different, um, uh, not teams, but uh, two different sides, actually, one is uh, very very regulated so if you think about uh, risk management and uh, you you have to uh, include the auditors you have to include the uh, central banks you have to include the authorities and everything and on the other hand side of course uh, you have uh, like like funds where they uh, want to seek uh, uh, certain trading strategies and uh, of course they are keen to apply this uh, uh, type of ideas using alternative data and so forth if they have some some nice ideas get trading signals whatsoever uh, and they generate some profit with that uh, i think yeah uh, uh, that's that's uh, quite nice and fair somehow and uh, also i think for uh, applications uh, within uh, middle office in the bank if you uh, want to use it for data cleaning or outlier detection and so forth yeah i think it would be good if you have, if you can identify outliers and then uh, 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 just uh, work on the data and come up with clean data uh, series for time series analysis for example and nobody tells you you do not have to use or you cannot use machine learning type of applications or statistical learning applications but if you uh, go <laughs> to the authorities and want to have an imm model uh, for counterparty credit risk or something and uh, you say, oh, here yeah, <laughs> I throw some machine learning techniques, some deep neural networks to something, and uh, let uh, this machinery do its job. I think uh, they would uh, not really approve it, and uh, uh, that's uh, something I don't know. This is under development actually to to get uh, some of the ideas in a in a, in a different setting. So uh, maybe as a kind of of tool inside or uh, something where you can use it for calibration exercises for example and uh, maybe there are ways uh, of uh, making this uh, more uh, mainstream in also in the risk world i would say maybe there are some techniques in the future for assessing somehow the um, the um, stability of these methods we are uh, looking into this explainable ai uh, um, World, I think there have been uh, has been a lot of progress uh, in um, explaining certain techniques, and uh, uh, there are many people who really force uh, to use these explainable AI techniques um, in quantitative finance. Uh, I'm very curious what the future will bring. There are certainly uh, applications for the quantitative uh, in the quantitative finance field for this. But uh, there needs to be some more um, work actually on how to explain it, how to assess uh, uh, the stability of these methods, explain uh, why and how it works. And uh, yeah, so I think it's just uh, a matter of time uh, when uh, we see more and more applications uh, of uh, machine and statistical learning in areas Where currently, I think uh, uh, the hurdles are quite high and uh, the methods or the application of certain methods, is quite restricted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, going back to your presentation, uh, utilizing GMMs, being Gaussian, I mean, how in that kind of framework do you deal with outliers, actually?
0: Uh, in, in this framework, so when I uh, consider uh, the, the data uh, which I'm using for as an input, I actually assume that uh, this is a, a type of uh, clear, clear, clean data. So uh, the, for the examples, I'm uh, using uh, data which is generated from the stochastic models. So, of course, uh, um, uh, they could be flawed. There could be outliers. If you use, for example, the wrong Monte Carlo simulation method, for the Heston or for the Bates model, uh, I think uh, uh, that is not, not really appropriate. And uh, uh, in, in real life, uh, so for example, uh, I also present uh, some applications of uh, synthetically generated data by using variational autoencoders or uh, uh, quant GANs, uh, so the uh, Generative Adversarial Network uh, type approaches. Uh, Uh, you have to account somehow for uh, how the data looks like. It's like in a linear regression, I would say. If you apply linear regression in the very, very easy setup for uh, pricing a Bermudan put option, just on one stock uh, using GBM, for example, uh, and have a very long uh, uh, dated option, you uh, face the problem that the GBM generates quite large range of the values, actually, And if you simply use uh, the linear regression uh, 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 with polynomials degree two or three uh, somehow, and just throw it to the data, you will see uh, that the results might not uh, really uh, work out. So you have to adjust your basis functions. Maybe you have to restrict the data uh, to a certain uh, um, interval somehow and ask yourself if some realizations of crisis beyond i don't know uh, uh, very large numbers are really feasible but on the other hand side if you cut off somewhere you would implicitly destroy the distribution so of course uh, there are always uh, some types of techniques uh, you have to apply uh, for uh, making uh, these methods work and uh, in in the uh, examples i present actually i'm not uh, caring for outliers but uh, uh, once you have uh, uh, specified, for example, from real life data, uh, the valuation uh, of the uh, GMM uh, in a way that you calculated uh, the, the weights, the means and the covariances to have your GMM model, it's not only something where you describe the data, but it also has the potential to generate data because you can sample from a GMM model in a way. And that's also quite interesting because uh, what I could do actually would be uh, that I can take a, a, a universe uh, of um, stocks which are available, for example, for a certain time period uh, have their common distribution in terms of the Gaussian mixture model. And if I now want to have one uh, 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 realization of a, uh, of a, Of one of the constituents at uh, a certain uh, value, I can condition on all the other variables in a way. So, having, uh, say, for example, a 10 dimensional uh, uh, Gaussian distribution, and I want to keep nine of these fixed and just want to sample one under the assumption that I know the distribution and the realizations of the other nine, I can generate this uh, uh, just one. uh, uh, realization there and that's uh, that's quite fine because of um, quite nice because one can use it in conjunction with bridging techniques for imputate imputing data and maybe also for uh, yeah uh, forecasting or backcasting data in a way. so uh, having a kind of conditional backcasting mechanism, which might be very interesting uh, in um, yeah setting up risk systems or for, I think exchanges where they have to uh, somehow backcast time series into the past uh, for some new uh, companies w- which uh, are now listed on a, on an exchange, for example, and uh, there is no data or for certain interest rates uh, maybe that are newly in uh, introduced and uh, where you just have only a small time series, but you need uh, to provide I don't know a time series which is to five uh, or even 10 years long. So uh, I think there are some uh, some potential applications in that as well. So uh, being able to conditionally generate data like uh, using the GMMs or conditional variational autoencoders, conditional GANs. So uh, conditional distributions I think are very, very interesting and uh, have a great potential not only in, uh, pricing and hedging applications but maybe in real life uh, applications for people working with market data so to just backcast time series impute and uh, missing values in time series and so forth
1: I feel reassured thank you Jörg <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the part that open source software played in in the process of doing the paper this is a very important area I feel I mean what are your reflections on having that community uh the openness of it this is something that will also lead on to uh a little bit of talk about um the collaborative process as well and 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 what's important in terms of in terms of research but yes i mean the, the the role that open source played in this for you
0: yeah so open source i think it's it's a very important uh part of the software business actually and uh uh, people use it in the uh, area of statistical and machine learning all over the place. So we do not want to talk about uh, Python and all the packages or R and all the packages. I think uh, this is a quite well-established open-source uh, community. But uh, I also uh, like uh, uh, using uh, quantitative finance libraries, uh, like, for example, YouTube uh, by Quantlib or our uh, um, uh, contribution at Quaternion or Acadia with the open source risk engine, which is based on on Quantlib actually, but uh, providing a kind of risk management uh, application framework interfaces to assess uh, the Quantlib classes and extend, uh, of course, the functionality there. And uh, what I like actually is, that you do not have to uh, really rework for doing research in real life, uh, all the say standard models uh, again and again and uh, implement a PDE solver, implement a Monte Carlo uh, simulation engine and so forth, or uh, for the 276th time the Hull and White model, because it's uh, somehow in there and it's it's accessible and it's, it's open source. So uh, whenever you have to document it, you can just uh, uh, show the source code if you want uh, and uh, uh, documentations and so forth, and it's it's also a nice collaborative tool because if somebody has a new idea, a new method uh, that can be uh, used or is uh, important for for the community, one can release it into the open source, either add it to, for example, ORE or Quantlib or uh, just make it available. So I think uh, that's very important also to spread the ideas in terms of uh, uh, applications. I think it would be nice if uh, people have uh, the access to the code which you use to produce certain figures in a paper, for example. I think it's it's just a way of uh, making the uh, contribution a, ni- a good idea for a certain uh, task uh, more accessible. And uh, uh, people, uh, I think like that because uh, uh, it's sometimes hard uh, to, to to understand the theory, then sit down, do all the coding from scratch and so forth. So I think uh, that's a, that's a re- really nice thing. And uh, yeah, there are some uh, open source projects. Uh, I mentioned uh, ORE, I mentioned uh, Quantlib, uh, there's also a nice library in java from christian Fries uh, called finmatlib he uh, has a lot of uh, uh, nice models implemented a well-designed uh, setup for that and uh, yeah so i think uh, there are some uh, open source uh, uh, sources <laughs> uh, which are accessible to the community and people can experiment with that and uh, i'm sure uh, one can find uh, a lot of diamonds in there and use it not only for uh, quantitative research in universities or uh, in the quant labs i would say but also actually in in real life applications so
1: spiritually it conforms with the scientific ethos isn't it of of open collaboration and so on spiritually and uh, there's a certain irony that we're we're dealing with one of the most secretive Industries in the world in terms of how people are doing things, so it's a it's an interesting tension there. Um, I think that um, another sort of side of this particular diamond is also publication of research as well, the open access ethos uh, with uh, in terms of in terms of uh, quantitative finance research. A lot of people, a lot of researchers, very much lean on releasing their work now through archive and uh, other such um, open access uh, repositories of work. Um, but the 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 one of the questions for me is about um, sort of completing the circle in terms of aspect of it that might be missing is the peer review, right? How do we deal with that? Um, Do you think that there's still an important place for for publications with peer review? Or do you think that it's going to be an area that also is going to be revolutionized uh, as a result of the access to technology, the platforms that are available, and so on?
0: Ah, that's a a, a tricky one, actually. Uh, I think uh, the peer review is uh, a a very important part of uh, research because it should uh, somehow uh, guarantee that the research which is published uh, has certain quality standards. And uh, it's also good if you're getting uh, the feedback. So uh, uh, the the peer reviews I was (laughs) involved in, Uh, somehow would uh, really be, uh, yeah, or led to to very, very uh, good uh, final results in the paper, uh, because, uh, yeah, everybody reads it in a different way, Uh, reviewers come back and uh, ask you for clarification, sometimes, of course, they challenge you, which might be a little bit tedious and bothering, because uh, you have to provide new examples. You have to run it on a certain type of data set they suggest. In the end, actually, uh, it uh, uh, somehow makes the uh, contribution better. It's uh, maybe you're realizing that uh, the initial methodology you provided or the algorithm you used is not stable enough. But uh, once uh, you reacted on the reviewer's uh, suggestion, Uh, you uh, see where you can improve your uh, methodology or your paper and I think that's uh, very important because in this uh, uh, setup using uh, the uh, uh, possibilities like archive uh, there's often not that uh, uh, great response or um, yeah often you do not get uh, uh, feedback on that and I think the reviewers Maybe sometimes they are too critical, but uh, uh, I think uh, you can always write your your rebuttal and defend uh, what you have written, actually. But I think overall, uh, this process is very important and it improves the research. It uh, improves uh, uh, upon your ideas, you reflect yourself, and I think that is something uh, um, the quant and the a research community uh, does not uh, really give up, actually, and uh, it's also an honor if you uh, uh, hand in your manuscript uh, to into uh, to a, a great journal, and uh, after this long review process, maybe also a short review process if it's already well written, go through. Uh, it's it's a kind of uh, yeah, real honor to have some publication in a very well respected. Uh, Yeah, peer reviewed uh, journal actually, and uh, it wouldn't be the same if you just have put it on archive and people like it, uh, but uh, having it uh, into a nice, uh, well respected journal is uh, something different uh, for the researcher, but also I think for the community, they uh, do more profit on that. But I like also the idea uh, early stage research uh, uh, and and method uh, you. make available on uh, these portals. And uh, people immediately know uh, uh, that there is something uh, written on that. And uh, maybe it's a source of uh, other researcher picking up the idea and uh, uh, making a great contribution out of it that afterwards uh, appears in a journal, for example. So I like uh, both ways, but I think uh, the peer review process uh, will stay in place and uh, it's very important to have it.
1: Absolutely. I keep telling people that too, but obviously I'm biased. Of course. You know, you've had varied experience through the industry over the years, both as a practitioner, as an educator, uh, as a researcher, and as a consultant. So, you know, um, an interesting question to put to you, I think, is... The structuring of teams, the fitting into teamwork, the importance of this kind of collaboration that we're talking about once it's brought down to that pinpoint, which is the team that is executing, whether it's research, whether it's uh, trading, whatever. In your experience, what have been the most important factors for you in terms of establishing yourself within an existing team and then also uh, defining what is needed to develop teams as well?
0: Yeah, so for me, I think uh, I uh, was always in a position, uh, luckily, I would say, uh, to only have a very, not very, but small teams, actually. So I started uh, with leading a team in a, in a German bank, which uh, I really uh, set up from scratch. And in the end, there were uh, five people, so not very big. And uh, later on, uh, I led teams uh, within the Quaternion and Acadia setting of uh, up to 10 people, 10, 15 people. And uh, uh, there, I think uh, you really know all the people in the team. And uh, I think that's very important. Uh, because then you can uh, recognize uh, certain skills, certain people, and uh, also honor uh, these uh, skills and, and people. Uh, that's, uh, that holds true in, uh, in professional life, but also in research. So uh, let me give an example. So uh, in a, in a research collaboration, for example, uh, you're gathering uh, the ideas, there might be some uh, people who really uh, have an intuition uh, for setting things up, but uh, they are very sloppy in writing things down, but there might be other people uh, who can then grasp the ideas, the intuition, and uh, produce a really nice formal uh, proof, a formal way of uh, uh, writing this down and uh, putting the words together make it into a very nice uh, presentation into a very nice uh, exposition and uh, other people then are uh, uh, engaging in the uh, project also understanding contributing but then in the in a kind of validation procedure to really uh, uh, read the paper from uh, uh, start to end and then tie everything together so that the success for uh, back again for this peer review thing uh, uh, that the success rate of handing uh, in the article uh, to a journal and getting it uh, accepted uh, gets gets high and in professional life i think it's the same some people more introvert, Uh, they do maybe the the coding, writing uh, reports, putting everything nicely together. And there are others uh, who then can take the ideas and uh, present it into uh, and go into committees, uh, present it there, uh, can really handle with with answers. They can quickly react and so forth. And I think that's very important. So uh, I was very lucky in my uh, career so uh, that uh, the teams I have, uh, or had to manage uh, worked very well, and uh, all the people accepted uh, how uh, the other people worked. And uh, I think everybody body uh, found its its role in in the team. And uh, yeah, we were lucky to have really all the different characters. So some people are a little bit sloppy, but very uh, uh, intuitional, uh, sensitive, and they could uh, really uh, grasp problems very fast. Uh, but on the other hand side, there were people who uh, then really structured the ideas and, uh, um, and laid them out, uh, uh, worked on, on documents really with a with a nice outline and structured and somehow, um, yeah, uh, supported uh, then the work of the people with the intuition. And uh, also, uh, luckily enough, uh, we had uh, always a lot the people who uh, uh, did, uh, yeah all the coding uh, very large uh, high coding skills uh, which they could apply in different languages so that was uh, really nice because uh, I think uh, not only the theoretical side and assessing of regulation of uh, topics and uh, ideas is important but also then taking uh, the ideas and producing code from which you then can produce numbers and check if everything is in line and right and yeah so we always had a a very good uh, mix of all the people and uh, uh, as an add-on all the people could were were able to to code and uh, produce these uh, uh, numbers and figures out of the uh, ideas and the underlying data that was uh, very helpful
1: absolutely the coding aspect of it actually sparks another question for me but i'll save that for a little bit later, a lot of our listeners, of course, are on the CQF program. Have been on the CQF program. It's about career development. They're looking to work their way up the ladder to a managerial, to a head of department type role. And uh, in you know, given given what you've said, would you say that there are any particular things that a person can can work on? in terms of making themselves more prepared for that responsibility of managing a team of of diverse skills and diverse uh, diverse interests um what uh, what sort of uh, mindset or characteristics ought that person cultivate
0: yeah so uh, i think that's an important question and not easy to answer actually so Uh, I think, first of all, I think you should get a good idea of uh, how the team uh, is structured, how it works, how it looks like, uh, how the mindset in the team is. And uh, I think uh, then implicitly, maybe also as a kind of intuition, you uh, um, approach a person, an applicant, uh, for a certain position in in this way. And uh, I uh, think... It's very important so that you not only look, of course, into the uh, CV with all the skills he could provide and assess programming skills, assess uh, quantitative skills, math skills and so forth. I think it's very important, of course, uh, but it should also uh, be uh, assessed uh, by can this person uh, be a part of the team uh, and uh, uh, where do one sees the position of this person in the team? And uh, uh, I have always uh, felt uh, very lucky because uh, I had uh, the teams uh, who wanted to, uh, to get introduced to the possible new hire. We afterwards discussed uh, if uh, somehow this type of character, this type of person would also fit into the team. And I think sometimes it's worse uh, uh, to look maybe a little bit longer to find a better match from skills uh, to personality uh, that uh, fit into the team, but uh, not taking just uh, the one with the highest scores in your math assessment or the highest scores in your coding assessment. I think uh, that is uh, that can be very important because otherwise you might uh, somehow slow down the whole team. If uh, there is uh, yeah uh, someone in there, uh, some person in there uh, that um, <clears throat> yeah does not uh, really uh, have the same type of spirit and the mindset of the people. <clears throat> of course, everybody had the experience that uh, you assess uh, persons in an interview. You had the good uh, confidence that everything works, but in the end, it turned out somehow that. Uh, It uh, does not really work. Of course, that's also something. And uh, there uh, you you have to decide if you uh, want to uh, carry on and uh, try to integrate. Or at a certain point in time, uh, you might say, uh, let's find uh, another uh, solution. Maybe in the organization, uh, try to also support uh, this person then to might uh, find something different in the organization. But uh, yeah, uh, that can happen. So nobody is uh, really uh, secure and safe for uh, judging uh, the situation wrong or somehow it turns out uh, that people uh, yeah, uh, behave differently than you expected or uh, there has been some incidents uh, in their personal life or in the team's uh, development such that uh, somehow the, uh, and ways somehow diverge. I think uh, that could every uh, <clears throat> can hit everybody and uh, you are not safe from uh, yeah, uh, experience uh, this in a way. Uh, despite the fact that you put a lot of time into the selection process and have a clear idea what you think is uh, very important, but uh, yeah, this happens as well.
1: Yes, that's life, right?
0: <laughs> of course, yeah. And you have to be prepared for that. So <laughs> I think that's uh, uh, very important for people leading teams that uh, they always uh, somehow uh, have to be in contact and uh, talk and uh, yeah, uh, see what's, what's going on, actually. And of course, I was lucky. I had only these uh, type of small teams, but if you are responsible for a large bunch of people, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, that gets harder and harder, of course.
1: You were, you were talking about um, the importance also of, of coding ability, you know, having, having members of the team uh, with that kind of profile. A question that's been on my mind since everybody got really scared of GPT. Uh, is, is, is the position of quant developer, something that uh, might be at risk of becoming extinct as a result of AI? And, uh, you know, talking about it in the context of what you were talking about there, um, where is the more sort of, it would seem like a, an obvious thing if if uh if artificial intelligence uh, generated code um becomes more robust um it's a possibility but uh can we talk about the nuances in terms of what makes a particular quant developer more special than just a regular coding jockey sort of thing should quant developers worry and what's going to make them less worried in the context of how can they differentiate themselves?
0: So I think uh, a quant developer is not uh, only uh, someone writing just a particular single uh, algorithm, actually. I think it's more of uh, having in mind uh, the whole uh, architecture of a certain library, or the interfaces, how uh, things work together and uh, then uh, using this knowledge of uh, enhancing the library by building a new class uh, building new interfaces uh, and knowing really what's going on so i like actually the idea of uh, some software some set- chatted gdp kind of thing of maybe uh, doing uh, more boring things for the programmer so for example you have to integrate uh, a new vendor system or a new database type into uh, and make it accessible for your library. So, to generate some uh, text or XML files uh, for certain trades or for market data, I think it would be nice just to specify uh, the, uh, the, the needs uh, just using uh, words. And uh, then uh, something like uh, this bot uh, creates uh, all the nice functionality transferring uh, certain. Uh, database entries into XML files and make uh, all the uh, boring work for you in a way. But uh, yeah, at the moment, I think uh, Quant developers really uh, maintaining libraries, uh, working also maybe with different types of programming languages know about the uh, things uh, you have to take care of uh, when you combine, I don't know, C++ libraries with uh, uh, other um, type of, uh, of code for, for making interfaces uh, to uh, GUI applications which are not written in plain C++. I think uh, that's uh, something uh, at the moment quant developers are uh, quite, uh, quite safe actually, but uh, maybe something like translating Python code into R or uh, Python code into C++ or whatsoever, uh, yeah, there might be potential uh, uh, using uh, that kind of thoughts. and as I said, I hope uh, some of the boring tasks uh, might be uh, sooner or later being replaced by uh, that applications in a way. Uh, but my experience, at least, is uh, also in the financial industry. Today, uh, people are seeking quant developers and quantitative analysts uh, being uh, knowing about the models, knowing about the markets, knowing about uh, uh maintaining libraries implementing stuff uh, into the library and so forth i think uh yeah uh, it's a it's a rare skill uh um, at the moment it is uh, because uh yeah that's uh, what i learned from the students at university uh they are currently more eager going into this uh, nice fancy things like self driving cars and so forth than uh, spending uh, of course their uh, uh professional time in Financial institutions, because uh, I think they they need somehow this uh, new uh, freedom and spirit of this uh, uh, of these new technologies, and in the financial industry, somehow, uh, of course, it's regulated; it has to be regulated. Uh, And uh, I don't know; people uh, might not really want to uh, be uh, in this setup where a a lot of things are really. yeah, uh, put in stone uh, how things have to be done, and uh, what type of models can be used They, they might be pay.
1: interesting. So do you think that any major uh, pay increases are going to be on the horizon to try and
0: <laughs> make um, up? I don't know if this is all about pay. So I've talked to a lot of students and uh, they said uh, uh, they want to do something say meaningful, either they want to do, and apply their modeling skills into uh, a climate modeling, uh, try to uh, find out about uh, uh, optimizing uh, certain uh, uh, processes in industry to make it more, uh, yeah, uh, uh, climate neutral. They want to build, uh, I don't know, fancy applications like chatGBT, like a self-driving car. So there are a lot of characters uh, around. Uh, they, they're not thinking uh, of money in the first place, uh, I have the feeling. So uh, just talking to the uh, uh, to students uh, currently uh, making uh, or, uh, mm, conducting their master degrees or bachelor degrees. Uh, of course, there are uh, people who like to uh, join the financial industry and I think money is uh, one of the arguments uh, for joining the industry. Uh, but there are uh, different types of characters. Some are the innovative guys. Some are the guys uh, who um, uh, like to uh, to give back something, to, to improve somehow the overall quality of life. Uh, I would term it maybe and uh, make it uh, sustainable and so forth. Uh, but also the people who uh, like to apply their skills in in uh, quantitative finance and one has to s- uh, say quantitative finance was always a pool of uh, having a lot of ideas from different fields and uh, applying these ideas to uh, a certain quantitative uh, uh, problems and questions in uh, option pricing in hatching and so forth so a lot of different uh, a uh, breed of people being its statisticians, pure mathematics, physicists, and all these guys have uh, contributed with fresh ideas to the field of quantitative finance, so uh, it, it, it's something uh, I, I liked because uh, uh, you learn so much new uh, techniques and ideas and a lot of uh, new inflow uh, from uh, different disciplines uh, is in there and there's still room of, uh, for applying new and innovative techniques there, I would
1: say. Precisely, how do we imbue quantitative finance with meaning to the current generation? Um, I think that this is uh, this is something that needs to be communicated on on college campuses in a different way, possibly. I think that uh, as you say, the heritage, of quantitative finance represents the possibilities of of the future, I would say, and uh, and, and and that's a very important observation. Now, one of uh, Espen Haug's favorite phrases was "is know your weapon," and when it comes to programming languages, it seems like there seems to be a new programming language uh, rearing its head every two months. What's what's your view on on which languages are apt for what purpose? And is there anything new on the horizon uh, that uh, that you, uh, you view as interesting?
0: Um, so I think uh, the main weapon in quantitative finance is uh, uh, C++. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of uh, libraries uh, are written in C++, and C++ skills are uh, very essential, I would say. And uh, uh, I, I think if you are fluent in C++ in a way. I think uh, it's not that uh, hard for you to learn any other uh, programming language. I think uh, C++ is uh, ubiquitous in the financial industry, but of course, uh, all the others uh, like Java, like uh, C-sharp, there is, of course, Python uh, uh, making its way because of all the uh, packages and uh, uh, the ease of uh, getting up to speed in, in Python. Uh, yeah, uh, there are of course some other potential candidates like Julia because uh, this is a very fast uh, processing language in a way it can handle uh, tasks much faster than than Python and uh, um, is also easy to to learn. So I've experimented a little bit with these programming languages. So, yeah, find them uh, nice, but uh, it's uh, something of course. Uh, Uh, You mentioned the heritage, and I think the heritage is, uh, for all the libraries, it's uh, actually C++ code in a way, and uh, I would advocate to learn really uh, the programming language uh, from scratch, so uh, I learned uh, C++ uh, uh, when I started, I'm not fluent in C++ anymore, by no means, so uh, Uh, I can understand C++ code and read it a bit, but uh, I think uh, getting to speed and really programming C++, uh, I I would have to spend a a quite a decent amount of time to do that again. But uh, yeah, it depends. So if you uh, really aim for being a quantitative developer, I think uh, this would be a very good choice to go with C++. If you, are somehow uh, using uh, programming language as a kind of uh, of tool of just checking certain things, uh, writing code uh, snippets, not really uh, maintaining libraries. I think Python is uh, very nice. S- uh, statisticians, uh, of course, they are advocating R. And there's always this uh, competition R and Python. I do not want to engage into that. I think uh, both uh, languages, they have uh, their pros and cons, actually. But uh, I think once uh, if you decided how to uh, or which uh, type of language uh, you want to use, then uh, uh, take uh, this uh, uh, slogan from Aspen uh, by heart and really learn uh, the programming language. Uh, so, not just uh, uh, gluing together certain code snippets from the internet and writing a Python program. So I think then you really have to know your weapon and learn the programming language, uh, really that you can uh, apply it, be fluent in it. If you use a new package, really get into the functionality, really know what's going on. I think that's very important. No matter which programming language you choose, uh, I think uh, really getting into it uh, when you want to apply it in real life, uh, that's in, in research would be important actually. But if you want to have a great career as a quant developer in quantitative finance, I think C++ would be uh, yeah, the, the programming language to go for, actually.
1: Exactly. Of course, we have to say that because we don't want to be excommunicated by Daniel J. Duffy either. So that's another strong reason to promote C++. Thanks so much for, for your time, Jörg. I... I would just like to wrap up finally with, you know, what would you hope that, uh, that people take away from, from, from your talk at the conference? What sort of key message do you hope that they take away from that? Uh,
0: so I, I think, uh, um, the key message would be uh, to see, uh, uh, another angle or another aspect of the Black Skulls, uh, Merton or Black Skulls, uh, approach of, uh, uh um, pricing options of uh the the framework there and uh, thinking about how to adapt uh, the key uh, ideas in my case it would be the hatching and uh, apply it in in a different setting using statistical learning for example maybe incorporating other ideas like this indifference pricing idea so just uh, uh, seeing. A certain angle of uh, the the contribution of lex golds and merton and not just uh, having the uh, pde and the uh, Lex golds formula in mind but uh, all the aspects and one aspect as i said is uh, uh, the, the idea of hedging and how one can use this basic concept in, maybe in a in a different setting using different uh, methods uh, not only uh, the ones which are currently established and to work very well. So that would be nice and uh, yeah, I would uh, love to hear if anybody uh, 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 can apply the ideas uh, for their real life applications and uh, maybe has some ideas for future research or collaboration or whatsoever, that would be fantastic.
1: Thank you very much, Jörg. And uh, if you're listening in and it's not uh, June the 14th yet, you'll be able to watch Jürg present at the Black Shoals 50th Anniversary Conference presented by the CQF Institute. Other great speakers going to be there as well. We have got Paul Wilmot, of course. Uh, We have Emmanuel Derman. We have Robert Litterman, uh, Laura Bellotta, and a host of others. And hopefully some uh, Eliyash as well. And we have uh, hopefully some surprise uh, speakers who are going to be announced in the near future. So that's on 14th of June. Uh, CQF Institute members attend for free. And of course, membership of the CQF Institute is for free as well. So you have no excuse. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jörg. Thanks so much. Thank you for
0: listening to speed. Don't forget to subscribe and do sign up to the CQF Institute for more insights into quant finance.